We're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. As we continue, you're going to see that um, this is kind of part A. The whole of these like 10 verses we're going to look at talk about a work ethic. And from 6 through 10 today, I'll, I'll do kind of part 1. And, and we're learning about different truths about the, the Christian work ethic, where it comes from, why it's important, and how it impacts your life and my life today. Okay, so that's kind of a, a general overview of, of kind of where we're going. But I want to start reading in verse 6, and then we'll read down through verse 10, and we'll have a word of prayer. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, We would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So let's pray. Father, everybody wants to have the right to define love and to define grace. Everybody wants to tell even you what love is. They certainly want to tell the church what love is. We are here humbly in your presence today saying to you would, you, would you teach us? Would you teach us about love? Would you teach us about work? Would you teach us about mercy? Would you teach us about wisdom? Because we live in a world absolutely starved for it. We don't want a wisdom that comes from this world, but we want a wisdom that comes from above. And so we're asking that as we set our minds on your word, that you would teach us more and more of your ways today, and our hearts would be transformed, we would grow in the way we look like Jesus together as a congregation, and all of that would be your work of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in a world that uh, more and more is looking for ways to not work. And this passage kind of says that even in the church, there's going to be times when the the attitude creeps in to our church family. Well, hey, you know, shouldn't we just kind of coast a little bit? And what's the big deal about working and working hard? That's not, that shouldn't be necessarily a Christian conviction. Shouldn't we be all about the love? Shouldn't we be all about the sharing? Shouldn't we be all, the, uh, all about the niceties? And really this, this concept here of, of the Christian work ethic is not one that we always talk about or talk about that often. So it's when we come to it, it, it really is an eye-opening thing. And so to me, as I was reading this passage this weekend, going, man, it's fun to talk about things like this that we don't always talk about. We live in a world where people look for reasons not to work. 
this passage says to us we should be the kinds of people who look for ways to work, to overcome hurdles. And, and we're going to look at an example in just a minute from Paul and Silas, but a great Christian example in this vein of working when there was plenty of reasons to not work is, is Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you know her story, but here she was, a young girl. She was in a diving accident where she became a paraplegic. And so she has very limited use of her hands and almost no use of her feet. And if anyone could have said, you know, here's a reason why. Here's, here's a hurdle I can't overcome. I am just going to sit back here and, and let others take care of me because, man, you guys can see it. I can't walk. I am absolutely challenged here. But rather than going there, she did some incredible things. She learned to paint using her mouth. She has started a worldwide organization that seeks to address the needs of a billion people on the planet, on the face of the planet today, who have special needs, whether physical, mental, or emotional needs. And call attention to it. Be a, a, like a bugle to the church to say, church, we're going to need to take care of these people and not let it be some limiting factor in the way we think about the gospel. People with emotional and physical and, and, uh, and mental disabilities are made in the image of God. We need to take care of them. So she started a worldwide organization to help us with this. Furthermore, she said, well, I, I can still think. And she's thought deeply about the word of God. And she can still write. She's written book after book about who God is and and his plan for the church caring for the needs of people around. So here she is, this person who might, by the world standards, have plenty of reason to not produce, to not work. And she's overcome them all. And that's really what this passage is about today, is us we as believers putting our heart and mind to the task of hard work. And so let's look at this passage a little bit. In verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Here's the problem. Paul and Silas has gone to the church in Thessalonica. They, they actually went to the, there before there was a church, and they noticed right off the bat, here's a problem. Some of these people are not working. They are able to work. They have opportunity to work, but they refuse to work. That's a problem. And once the church uh, took root there, the attitude of not working continued. Okay? So here Paul and Silas are. They come in person and they teach in the synagogue for three consecutive Sabbath days. And here they are teaching the word to the people of Thessalonica. And we see in verse 10, look down at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's the first time they've addressed this issue with the church at Thessalonica. When they went to visit, they said it. I said, guys, we noticed this is a problem. Turn back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just a page or two back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Here's the second time. Now, let me just take a step back. After Paul and Silas went and established the church in Thessalonica, they went immediately to another city and, and wrote 
Uh, they, they actually left Thessalonica under kind of protest. Remember, they were in the house of Jason, and these people came and said, you're upsetting the city, you're out. And so if you were with us from the beginning of this study, that's just a review of what happened in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. So they kicked him out of Thessalonica, they kicked him out of Jason's house, and so the church has some issues, and, and Paul is writing in 1 Thessalonians a letter back to his friends to say, here's, here's what you need to overcome. So he is, he's dealing with some issues, he's dealing with the, the return of Christ, when that will be, what that will look like. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he addresses this idleness again. Verse 11, And to aspire, he's instructing them, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So now here's the second time he's addressing this issue in a letter saying, I I still hear you guys aren't working and you need to be putting your heart and mind to gainful employment unless there is a physical reason, a mental reason, an emotional reason not to do so. Okay, If you have the ability to work, And the opportunity to work, you should work. So he's addressed it a second time. And now here we are, months later, a second letter to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 3, verse 6. And so he's addressing this same issue again. Each time, he gets a little bit more forceful. We don't know exactly what he said when he was there. But now, then the second time, they've got it in writing in 1 Thessalonians. And now in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, he is like laying it on the line. He's saying this this issue of going to work, if you can work, is such a crucial issue in the life of the church. I don't want you to get it wrong. I want you to hear this loud and clear. Now, we command you, brothers. That's that's strong language. And and he's saying not just us, but look, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, want you to get it. And so we're really on this first issue. This first principle right now, that as we pursue a biblical work ethic, we've got to note the teachings that God has given to his people. So Paul has taught the, the people. He has, he has taught them what God intends for them. This third time, he is saying, it's absolutely a command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, so much so that if there is somebody who calls himself a brother in your midst, and you've admonished him, and you've taught him about the Christian work ethic, and you've taught him the importance of if you have the ability to work, you ought to work, and you're still not taking care of your family, the next step is to take a step back from him relationally. Uh, Disfellowship. Put him at the periphery of the church life so that he won't have impact on the relationships in the church. We're going to look at that in just a minute. This is a bold statement that Paul is making, and it seems counterproductive. It doesn't seem very loving. I want you to note that here and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this teaching about removing someone who will not work from fellowship immediately follows a teaching and a plea and a prayer for the love of God to reign in the people of God. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Right before this verse, here we go. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And so he's saying, okay, I'm praying that you have the love of God in you as you admonish idle people in your midst. And if they won't be taught that you literally disfellowship them, take a step back from them relationally because it's so crucial that Christians follow the Lord in the way that they work 
This is very forceful language that he's using. So this, this problem was in the church. And, and I want you to, if you look at verse 6, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from the brother who is walking in idleness. That word walking there indicates a pattern of their life, but it indicates a life in disarray. It's a missing the mark kind of life. They're not at all hitting what they should be hitting. The pattern of their life is absolutely out of line. We would use the word today, truant. They're not where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there. We have truant officers to make sure that students attend school and they're in the right place and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. All of this brings to mind for me 2 Samuel chapter 11. You guys are familiar with the story of David? In 2 Samuel chapter 11, he's on his roof looking down over the, the uh, porch, down onto a roof near him, and he sees Bathsheba, and he calls her to be with him and sins sexually, and then to cover it up, he sins with violence as he literally murders her husband. And then, as if that's not enough, his kids see that he's done that. And in 2 Samuel chapter 13, his kids repeat the exact same two sins verbatim. His kids saw dad do it, and they, their sexual sin. And then there's a sin of murder as one brother kills another in David's household. Here's our point. Here's our point. David was truant. 2 Samuel chapter 11 says, In a time when kings should be out at war with his army, David stayed home. He was not where he was supposed to be. And that was the beginning of all of the troubles as he let idleness rule in his heart. And and we come to this passage today and and Paul is just saying to us, this is such a big deal in the church. Don't think this is some periphery, secondary issue. I'm telling you, we have to take it seriously. And and listen, in our church today, I don't know of a lot of people. You know, I don't have a lot of conversations with people who are just like, yeah, you know, I don't really feel like it. I'm just not going to work. I don't like working. But we live in a world where we're looking for excuses not to work, don't we? And so we just got to make sure that we take this as seriously as Paul is taking it here. And when we hear and we ask ourselves, am I, in, am I where God wants me to be? Okay, why were they living idle lives? I think some of them really thought that the Lord was going to return soon. Okay, so that's the first reason why we might live in a, in a church where we have people who say, you know, and I'm not going to work. Why work? What's the point? I mean, look at the world. It's falling apart. Jesus is going to return soon. And so I've already kind of pressed the pause button. I've already kind of, I'm already kind of just waiting for him to return. I think the end is very near, so I, I just don't think it wor- it's worth it to work. Well, this was 20 years after, of course, Jesus had, had ascended into heaven. And right after he ascended into heaven, he sent angels to say, guys, why are you still standing here? Go do the mission. Go make disciples. Go obey what I've commanded you to do. And so there was some confusion that it was going to happen, like, you know, really quick. But there's also the teaching of Scripture, which tells us what to do when we're not sure what to do next. And the teaching of Scripture, which we're going to look at in just a minute, teaches us to be at work, to, to, gainfully, to be at gainful jobs for the purpose of God's glory, right? 
So these are the people, though, I think that the, they're the over-spiritualizers. Do you have anybody in your life who's a God-told-me kind of person? Oh, God told me. God told me. Oh. Listen, God told me can be a beautiful thing. But listen, every time God tells you something, it has to line up 100% with what the Word of God says. Or God didn't tell you that. Right? God doesn't tell anybody not to work. And these, I've had people who say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my job. I'm going to do this. I'm just going to wait for the coming of the Lord. I'm going to start this relationship that on the outs- onset, it looks a little fishy. It looks a little inappropriate, but God told me to. No, no, God didn't tell me. And you know what God tells the church in this situation? If God told you not to work, God told the church to take a step back from you and disfellowship you from where you're at. That's bold. That's exactly what Paul wants to get across. So if you've got somebody who over-spiritualizes and, and says, is the God told me? I'm, I'm fine with somebody say, I've heard from the Lord. But every time you hear from the Lord, it has to line up 100% with Scripture, which, with, with revealed Word of God. And even then, God may have told you, but, but all the rest of us, you'll excuse us if we kind of hold it with an open hand until we see what, what's happening in your life, right? So, with that said, there's a second kind of person who just might think, well, you know what, this job is just kind of like beneath me. I, I don't want to have to do a job like that. There was a popular, you know, thinking in that day, you know, that, that physical jobs are beneath people. And in the city of Thessalonica, it's, it's better to have a job where you think and you're a philosopher and you, you do things with your mind and you do things with ideas and you do things with politics. That's the kind of job we want. But these jobs where you've got to make stuff, that's kind of beneath us, some of them thought. And in essence, um, that's a prideful position. There's no job beneath us. Every job is important. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Every job needs to be done for the good of this world, right? And needs to be accomplished with, a, with the right attitude before the Lord. And so if you have that prideful attitude that there's just some jobs that are beneath your dignity, just a reminder that 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that every job can be done for the glory of God. And every job should be done. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your might to the glory of God. Maybe there's a third concept, and, and there's just some people who are just lazy. They just didn't want to work. I don't want to do that. I'd rather sit at home. And they would then impose on the church by needing financial support. So whether it was that they were saying, well, I'm going to wait for the return of the Lord, or I'm just lazy, at the end of the day, they still needed to eat. And so they, there were these people who were kind of just like, well, I'm just going to sit back. I'm just going to chill out, and, and I'm just going to wait. And, and eventually I'll get food because, look, I live in a loving community called the church, and the church should give me stuff. Listen, anyone who's lazy and won't work, neither the world nor the church owes them anything. And so perhaps some were just lazy. There's a couple of verses I wrote down for myself because I need to remind and train my heart all the time in this topic. My heart runs to laziness way too quickly. So I jotted these verses down. You can just jot the references down. I'm just going to read one of them to you in a minute. But verses which would teach us about what happens to the lazy. Proverbs 10.26. Proverbs 12.27. They're all Proverbs, so you don't have to rewrite Proverbs every time. 1026, 1227, 1519, 24, 30 through 34. And I'm just going to read a good Wisconsin proverb for us here. Hope you like this one. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27. 
Sorry, I should have got there a lot faster. Okay. Proverbs 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. That's pretty straightforward. So, you know, you don't feel like hunting in the morning. Uh, maybe you won't eat the game at night. Now, there's a shared, of course, sometimes not everybody goes on the hunting expedition. So we don't want to, the, the concept of the proverb is that it's a general wisdom truth. That if I won't hunt, I won't have game to roast. It's a general truth. So uh, that's the problem, and those are the folks that they were kind of dealing with at that time. There was a foolishness, there was an over-spiritualization, there was a pridefulness, and regardless of the motivation, uh, MacArthur wrote in his commentary on this, there is no valid excuse for someone who has the ability and opportunity to work to not do so. There is no valid excuse for someone who has the ability and opportunity to work to not do so. Here's the question. Why is this such a big deal? For me, in our church today, this doesn't... seems like we might actually err on the other side of this, right? That we work so much that we're starting to get our identity. And rather than being idle, we're making our work an idol, right? So, so we've got to hold this tension point in this teaching that we don't err on either side of that. Neither towards idleness nor towards making our work our God. And so here's what Paul wants us to understand. The teaching of God's word, the teaching that God has given his people is not a new thing or something that just Paul brought to Thessalonica. It's all through the scriptures. Number one, God exalts, he exalts work by commanding it. He commands it. Command number four, if you want to jot it down to to read it later, Exodus chapter uh, 20, Exodus chapter 20. Verses 9 and 10. Six days shall you work, but the seventh you shall keep separate to the Lord. And you shall rest on that day because God rested on the seventh day. Well, here's a command. Listen, six days shall you work. Have you ever thought about that command as it relates to the fact that God's given us work and he has is, he is absolutely dignified it for you and me? He has called us to it. It brings... Uh, it brings, uh, I, uh, well, we'll talk about all the things that come from, from uh, work, and, but it gives us development and production and, and value in our lives. Absolutely. So God exalts work by commanding it. He commands a six-day work week. And just to throw it out there, uh, whether you have a six-day-a-week job or a five-day-a-week job, just a reminder, God, God says six days shall you work. Uh, the, the modern five-day work week came from unions and legislation way back in the 20s and, and the teens um, when the Industrial Revolution was taking full force. And, and basically, so it's modern unions that have defined a five-day work week. God defined a six-day work week. And I'm not saying if you work five days, there's something wrong with you or you're in sin. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the norm that God prescribed is work six days and take the Sabbath off. Okay? Good. Number two. So why is this such a big deal? Because the Scriptures teach us that God is a God who works. What does God want you to know about him? Well, he inspired Moses to write down some incredible things about who he was. The first books we have about God is, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So here we have the law. 
And the first phrase that God inspired Moses to write down about him is very simple, and we all know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first thing he tells us about himself is he is a God who works. He is a God who gets the job done. When you see the birds flying, when you see the the whales coming up out of the water, when you see the sun setting, when you see the stars at night, when you see all those things happening in the world, the first thing God wants you to know is he did the work to make it. He is creative and powerful. He's at work. So it's really cool to know that God calls us to work because he works. He's the model for our work. He's working for the good of his people. He's working for the glory of his name. He's working to bring about his sovereign decree. He is working uh, to preserve his people. He works to preserve his word from generation to generation. Not a period or a comma or a cross T will pass away because God promises to preserve it in every generation. He's working to do that. He's working... uh, in providence, working out the details of your life. He's working in judgment. He's working in sending his son to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is a working member of the Trinity. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to absolutely accomplish the law. When you broke it and I broke it, Jesus kept it perfectly. Jesus lived the perfect human life as God in the flesh, in our midst. Someone had to pay for the penalty for my sin and for yours. And God was pleased to put your sin and mine on Jesus, though there was no sin found in him, and he paid the sin penalty. Work language is used in that when we look at Romans chapter 3, for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died your death so that he could be raised the third day to give you his life. Jesus is absolutely our God, and he absolutely works. He told his disciples then, listen, as he paid for their sins on the cross, after he was risen the third day, he said to them, listen, I'm going, well, actually, this was prior to that, but he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so he is a God who works. He's preparing heaven for us. And then as he was released from the world, he sent the third member of the Trinity to continue the work. The third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is at work in this world all the time. He's convicting people of their sin. He's illuminating the word of God so that you can understand it and so that I can understand it. He is regenerating those who didn't belong to him and bringing them into the family of God. He's bringing life where there was death. He indwells the people of God. And so here, as we look at God, we see that he is absolutely working all the time, taking the seventh day off to rest, being an example for us, not because he was tired, but showing us that we should take the seventh day and give it back to him, okay? And, and so we have this Father, Son, Holy Spirit God who absolutely has given us the example of work. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thirdly, God gave man the creation mandate. Genesis chapter 2, 15 says that God put Adam in the the garden. He didn't put him in the garden to hang out. He did not put uh, Adam in the uh, garden to be. Can't we just be? Isn't isn't, Isn't being more important than doing? 
You know what? Being and doing are both necessary in the church. He didn't put Adam in the garden because he was lonely and needed someone to talk to, and Adam just hung around all day waiting for the cool of the day till God would show up and he could talk to God. No. Genesis 2.15 says that God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. Before there was sin in the world, God dignified work and gave Adam a particular mission. Take care of my world for me. Be the liaison between me and the world as you take care of it. And you see in your sermon notes today, he also gave him an intellectual job to go and name all of the animals. God was using not only his physical work of taking care of the garden and and being a gardener, he was also using the intellectual work. uh, He was also giving Adam intellectual work to name all the animals. God is a good God. And he's given you and me significance as we follow him in this area of, of work. I don't want you to think that work is somehow the result of the curse or the fall. So because we sinned, now we work. That's not the case at all. Because we sinned, work is harder, says in Genesis 3. Because we sinned, there are thistles, and uh, the, the ground will bring forth the fruit through toil and struggle and sweat and pain. So that's what Genesis 3 says about work. So definitely the ground was cursed because of the fall. But work was profound and prescribed prior to there being any kind of sin in the world. In fact, I'll just go one step further. I think that heaven and Eden are going to be a lot alike. I mean, think about God put man in the garden and there was no sin and he made this perfect world. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we're going to be doing in heaven? With God, without sin, forever? And so here's my, here's my thought on that. I'm, I'm thinking that you and I are going to have jobs. We're going to have work to do forever and ever. You're going to have tasks that you're really good at and that you love to do and that you do better or differently or in a, in a way that brings a, brings a gift to heaven. It brings a gift to your Savior forever and ever. And you're going to love doing it. You're not going to get tired of it. And it's going to be amazing. Now, for those of you who are tired today from work, I'm sorry. I know that you just rolled your eyes and thought, oh, no. When I was a kid, though, I had always heard that, you know, heaven was going to be about singing all the time and playing a harp. And I, wa- I was like, what? That, that does not sound fun for a seven-year-old kid that can't sing really well. So I was, I, as I put together kind of, oh, Eden and, and heaven, there's some really cool things that are going to be happening there. Work is a gift from God. The fourth thing I want you to see about, about why this is such a big deal, because scriptures teach us that work is a gift from God. We get to develop this world that God has made. Think about the advancements that have been made since the foundation of time in this world. You know, I think about the advancements that have taken place in recent days. That the, the concept of online education, let that settle in for a minute. Where a few years ago, you would have to drive far away to get excellent education, and now you can get it in your living room if you know the right buttons to push. It's amazing, the world we live in today. Think about advancements that have been made in medicine. And we could go right down the list. Uh, work is a gift from God to serve others, to make their life better. 
Work is a gift from God to improve life. And so at first, I've been talking about being, being employed and having a heart to work. Right now, we're talking about our attitude toward our work. We're talking about the, the work ethic. Don't just do your work. Do your work as unto the Lord, right? So work is a gift from God. Production, it gives us significance in this world. We should have significance from our work. That is not ultimate significance, You don't ultimately say, well, who am I? Well, this is the job I do. Well, of course, we need to get all of our significance from the fact that we belong to God. He's forgiven our sins. He's brought us into relationship with him only through the work that Jesus did on the cross. And he gives us gifts to serve the kingdom and jobs to do for his glory as we belong to him. It's okay to to feel encouraged and to do your work with excellence to get extra training, to put in extra hours. It's a beautiful thing. And so production, significance, we give contribution to the world around us, value to our families, meaning in our own hearts and fulfillment. Through the work that God's given us to do, uh, through work, we create just like God created. We communicate God's goodness to the people around us. We provide for and serve others. And ultimately, we glorify God. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Let's take a moment, just back away for a minute, and just say to you, if you can work, we should organize our life and work in such a way that we can also take care of the people around us who cannot work. A heartbeat of the church should be, as Johnny Johnny and Friends is teaching us, to reach out to and minister to people who can't give back. That is one of the beautiful byproducts of following the Lord and serving him in the way we think about our money, in the way we think about our time, and certainly in our jobs. So the church should be a place where we are absolutely meeting the needs of people who cannot work, and we are absolutely refusing to meet the needs of people who can work. And that's love, according to the passage we're studying today. That's the love of God, according to this passage. All work must be done for God alone. Let me just address you if you have a hard boss to work for. It it is hard to go to work day after day if your boss changes the rules, moves the deadlines, blames you for bad stuff that happens, and takes credit for good stuff that happens. That stinks. And some of you, that is the hardest part of your job. It really is. How do we maintain a mindset, a heartbeat for God, when our work environment is twisted and difficult? And uh, this is addressed in scriptures. And so Ephesians chapter 6 addresses that issue. Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, state it this way. And if you're in this situation, boy, you're going to be like, oh, man, that passage, that's rough. But if you're in a situation where you're having a hard time in your work environment, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Aren't you glad that when you couldn't keep the rules, Christ kept them on your behalf? He doesn't change the rules. He doesn't change the stipulations week by week. He doesn't move deadlines on you. 
I hope that if you have a hard boss to work with, you rejoice more and more in belonging to Christ. He's not changing the rules. He has met the standards for you. Verse 6 in Ephesians chapter 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And this mindset of saying, okay, my boss is hard to work for, I'm hard to work with, but I'm going to aim any obedience and any provision and any production in my, in my job, I'm going to aim it at Jesus Christ. I'm going to do my best to glorify him. When my boss changes the rules, I'm going to take that to the Lord. When my boss changes the deadline, I'm going to take that to the Lord. I'm going to just submit myself to the Lord and possibly use this as an example to either confront the boss and say, this, this is not okay, or possibly being moved to a different job altogether. You know? But, but the, the key lesson we learn here is that back in that day, there were literally slave-master relationships, and Paul was seeking to say, look, we, we can still have good relationships, even if you, your job is as bad as being a slave. And so he, he addressed it and addressed it there. So my heart for you, if you're in a situation like that, is certainly that you have friends who are praying for you, you have the Word of God who's coming to minister to you, and, uh, and you have absolutely this perspective of aiming your obedience at Christ rather than at your boss. So what's the big problem with idleness? So what if it would rain in the church? So what if we had some people in the church who were idle? What's the big deal? Why is he just, just uh, confronting this with such vigor at this moment? Well, the first thing we need to see is that it's disobedience to the revealed will of God. We cannot live in a place where we literally all say here this morning, Jesus Christ is my Lord, but we have pockets of us who obviously, and even after confrontation, refuse to submit to the word of God. Can't have that. That's the beginning of trouble. That's disobedience. And so the individual is impacted, and then other areas of church life are impacted as other people say, well, if they don't have to obey the word of God and still call themselves a brother, this is the area I'm going to disobey God and still call myself a brother. And this is the area I'm going to disobey. And all of a sudden, in the church, we have a whole movement of people saying, you know, I call myself a brother in Christ, but I, there's parts of the Bible I don't want to obey. That's just, it's not okay. And that's, one of the, that's the main reason why Paul is saying, absolutely not. It is clear that God has, has dignified work and called every able-bodied person to work. There can be dissension in the church if that's left to, to reign. Dissension is this idea of, I don't want to work, I won't work, and, but I still have to eat, and so I need somebody with money to pay for my decision to not work. Who will that be? Right? And so now there's relational problems. And he literally in this passage says, here's how you deal with the relational problem of somebody who refuses to work. Move them out relationally of the church so that it doesn't create dissension in the church. Wow, that's profound. That is is hardcore, what he's doing here. Big problem with idleness, uh, there can be depression in the individual for people who refuse to work. When, and I get that from this idea of those four or five or six things we talked about, that, that God ordains work, that God is a God of work, he is, he's the example of work, 
He has, he has absolutely given us jobs to do in this world, taking care of his kingdom for him, his world for him. When I refuse to do all of that stuff and take a step back and stay in my basement or stay in my house all day, I'm not doing what I was created to do. And how could I be, feel anything but downcast in my spirit when I'm not obeying the creation mandate? How could I feel anything but depression? Now, I'm not, a I'm not a professional counselor, but many times when I've talked to the, my friends who are professional counselors, they say the best therapy for depression is to get a job. Because it pushes you into a position where you are, whether you like it or not, you are obeying the, the Lord in giving back to the culture every day. And you get to 8 o'clock at night, and you are a, de- a, a person struggling with a dark place in your heart, and you can look back on your, play, on your day and say, well, for four hours I went and produced something today. That's better than yesterday. And we move on to tomorrow. And so I've had friends who have done counseling with people who have really struggled in this area, and... Uh, some of them even going so far as to say it wasn't anything I said. It was the fact that they got a job and stuck with it. That's what brought them out of the depression. So um, I'm not saying that's the cure-all for all depression. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I am saying we need to be engaged in obedience to the Lord in the Christian work ethic together as a body of believers every place we're able. That's the bottom line where I'm trying to teach here. Good. Okay, so three admonitions to work. We've already said, look, the teachings that God has given, and secondly, I want us to see that there's examples here in this text. Verses 7 through 9 say, say this. For you yourselves know that you, how you ought to imitate us. So here Paul was in Thessalonica, and he was teaching on the word all day long, and this passage, without going through every word, it says this. It says he had the right to not work at night. He could have gone back to Jason's house, had some pizza, relaxed a little bit, talked about the day, prayed with Jason, got ready for tomorrow. But he saw that there was a weakness in that church to think that they could be idle. So rather than give them this example of him kind of kicking back, he said, I'm going to work night and day while I'm there. So he didn't eat anybody's bread for free. He didn't take Jason's uh, hospitality for free. He worked so that he could later say to the church, here's what I want you to do. Work. In another passage, he says, I-, I worked harder than anybody while I was out there so that I wouldn't be beholden to anyone. Now listen, there are times when we as believers need to take gifts from people, and there are other times when we need to be the gift giver. Okay? And so he was an example to the church saying, I worked all day, then I worked all night. And the whole reason I did that, even though I could have asked for the gift, the whole reason I did that is so I could say to you, guys, it's not okay to be idle. You've got to produce. You've got to have jobs that produce, right, for the kingdom. Not just, not just financially, but produce for the kingdom of God. And let me just say, dads, moms, we need to be examples to our kids in this topic. Overcoming hurdles, and not just in the area of doing it, but in the area of how we talk about it. Let me give you an example of that. If you have a, if you have a daughter, if you have a son who, who errs toward idleness, 
And you go to work, but then when you come home, you talk negatively about work, you talk negatively about your boss, you talk negatively about the situation. Your son, your daughter may be hearing, yeah, he goes to work, but he hates every minute of it. He hasn't gotten the concept that God has called him to this noble task. He hasn't gotten the concept that God has called him to this give back to the world kind of thinking. Dad hasn't gotten the concept, mom hasn't gotten the concept that that job actually is accomplishing God's reign over this world. And so we want to be a good example to our kids as we talk about our work experience. Not just going every day, but producing to, for the good, for the, for the glory of God, and then speaking plainly to them. Now, obviously, we can tell them about struggles we have. We can be honest at some level. But the The biggest part of our example as they examine our lives needs to be that we respect our work environment. We're thankful to God for the fact that he's provided work for us and we love to do it in his name. And so we need to provide an excellent example for our kids. And then finally, a warning in verse 10. So as we pursue this biblical work ethic, a warning that God has given, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Again, it's bold. Withdraw relationship with one who will not work. And let the natural consequences of their choices come home to roost for them. But I thought we were supposed to be the church. I thought we were supposed to be nice. I thought we were supposed to be all loving. Well, we, we are loving. And we're, we're having the love. We're being led into the love of God. And, and the purpose of treating somebody who will not work like this is not so that they'll starve to death. When someone is hungry enough, they'll go to work. The purpose of treating someone like this is to restore them and to encourage them. It's to have a place, a people of God who are absolutely in obedience to the word of God with our whole heart and mind. It's to produce so that we'll have resources not for the people who who won't work, but for the people who can't work. We long to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. It's absolutely the heart of God to do that. And so making those distinctions as we go, those who won't work shouldn't, shouldn't eat. Guys, this is, a, this is an amazing teaching. And we do not want to be the kind of church that just says, well, you know, you're just going to throw your hands up and we don't have any grace. We want to be a gracious place where we take the word of God seriously. We want to be employed across Sheboygan County in southeast Wisconsin, understanding that where you are employed, you are serving the Lord. You are absolutely a part of his kingdom as you turn, turn screws and... and, and nuts at your job, or if you clean up at your job, or if you uh, make things at your job, or if you understand medicine enough to be able to prescribe the right amount in the right situation for the right person, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. I take one step back and just make two final closing comments. Number one, if you're retired, we're about to be retired. This passage does not say you have to keep working for gainful employment even after you have uh, amassed enough money 
to not have to work for that. You can take care of your family, in other words. Remember what the Bible says? That one who will not take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. And so the goal is to take care of your family. So what I, but what I don't want us to do, and I'm going to take a step away literally from the middle of the stage, from the, from the Bible, as I give you what I, what I think is wisdom, but I'm, I'm eager to hear from you on this if you see it differently. I think it's a good and right thing to amass enough money that you can retire from your for gain employment as long as your heartbeat and your mindset is not that once I get done with this for gain employment, I'm going to go out and play the rest of my life. I'm just going to go play golf the rest of my life. I'm just going to get really good at you can fill in the blank the rest of my life. God hasn't called us to play. In fact, the reality is you may have your most significant uh, advancement, your most significant contribution to the kingdom of God when you can stop working for gain, where you can serve and you may have a new ministry on your hands. But you're constantly thinking about not how can I play, not how can I stop working, but how can I work for the kingdom of God. And that might be here at the church. It might be at a school. It might be at a local organization. It might be at a, at a pregnancy center. It, it might be a million different places. But again, our heart is not that we can get enough money so we can play for the rest of our life. Our heart is that we can retire from a job because we have enough money and that we can then serve the kingdom with the gifts and skills God's blessed us with, serve it in a different way for the rest of our lives. So I think that's the heart. And the other one is just to say this. This doesn't say every person has to work a gainful employment job. If you're a, if you're a husband staying at home with the kids or if you're a wife staying at home with the kids and you're saying, well, it seems like that passage was teaching that everybody has to work. No, no. Here's what, it, here's what it's saying. Don't have the attitude that you won't work. Don't be idle. Don't sit around all day and then presume on others for your well-being. And hopefully God has placed you in a home where there's someone that can go to work and maybe somebody else who can stay home to uh, uh, care for the needs of the home. And that's a beautiful thing that God has ordained. All right? Good. Let's stand together as we close in prayer. Fathers, we go from this place. We pray that our heartbeat would not be to make work a new thing we serve. Work is not our God. You are our God. We don't want to work so much that we miss out on other opportunities and relationships. So on the one hand, yes, help us to work hard in your name. And on the other hand, help us to influence people at work and at home with your kingdom and with your word. I pray that you would minister to the one looking for work right now maybe looking for a different job, maybe looking for a job in general because they're unemployed. And I pray that you would give them not only the ability, but then the opportunity to work. And I pray in this place that we would always use your resources to take care of people who cannot work for your honor and your glory. We give you this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Have a great day.